here's Johnny. I'll be back. And you will know my name is the Lord. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Mike and Jamie. But more importantly, we have a special guest star today. Everyone give a warm welcome to the director of In Search of uh, the In Search of Darkness trilogy, Mr. David Weiner. Hey! I tried really hard not to do that like Kermit the Frog, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hey! David Weiner, hey! hey! I can't do Kermit very well. It's great to be here. Thanks for, for having me, guys. I I think we're all really huge fans of In Search of Darkness. So this is this is a real treat for us. I'm so excited you're here. Uh, I can't wait to kind of dive into the uh, sausage making process on these things because I honestly have no idea how you put together a four plus hour documentary on anything. It seems exhausting. I don't know how you maintain the energy to do it three times. Well, I didn't once. do it all at once, so that 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 is the first step. Um, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I listened to you guys uh, uh, dissect in search of darkness uh, part two, and I really enjoyed listening to you guys and your your. Oh, good. Uh, your, you still called in. That's a- well, <laughs> as it was your candid take, and and listen, I I I, th- I think you had lots of interesting and valid thoughts about things that you liked and didn't like, and and I, I'm very used to that with the in search of darkness trilogy because I think it's it's uh it's gotten wonderful uh. uh feedback and 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 support from fans and lots and lots and lots of love but there's you know there's there's a couple critiques that i think are incredibly valid and i I think it goes to the structure when you're talking about four and a half hours and now in search of darkness part three is the longest at five hours and change um it can be a bit of a frustrating structure because we're going from 1980 to 1989 with a bunch of movies that we cover. And then we've got larger context chapters in between just to really sort of build a, a good sense of the, the history and the placement of these films within the zeitgeist of the decade. Uh, but, you know, it's it can also be a bit of a, a, a frustrating element if the movie that you want in the movie, you know, in In Search of Darkness is not there. Um, and, and I just wanted to say that part three is kind of a bit of the solution to that because so many people ever since part one have been saying, oh, it's, I love this and I love that. Why didn't you do X, Y, and Z? Why didn't you do this movie? Why didn't you cover that? And then I did my best to cover as many as I could in part two. And then they're like, this is great. This is even better. It's more eclectic. But how could you? It's an absolute crime. How did you not do X, Y, and Z? And so what we decided for part three was uh, we really wanted to ingratiate the backers and the horror fans to dictate what the content would be, which movies we would cover. And we we did a survey. We did a poll from the survey. I've been taking uh, very, very meticulous notes ever since the beginning of part one, looking at Letterboxd and, and what people have to say, listening to your podcast. and And I could say confidently that we're still not including the movie that you want. <laughs> you could do 99 out of 100 and there would still be that complaint like, oh, come on. You didn't there's do 100, Babysitter Killers from Space Part 9? Why not? Well, I want, it's on the list. No, there, <laughs> there's hundreds of movies that came out in the decade. And, and with 14 hours of an exploration of In Search of Darkness 1, 2, and 3, there's still hundreds that we, we have yet to get to. But I could say uh, confidently that all the material, we've got 79 movies 
that we talk about, plus the chapters in between. These are 100% chosen by the backers and the fans and the community, and it made my job easy this time. <laughs> I will say, uh, I saw the little preview clip that was forwarded to us, and I was really excited to see that in, in part three, you're covering stuff like uh, Cemetery of Horror, uh, or Cemetery Tor Terror, excuse me. Yeah, like, Cemetery stuff, of Terror. I don't know that well, so it's one of my favorite parts of this franchise is... Yeah popping it in and seeing a movie I had no idea existed and getting to go do my homework and watch that for the first time. That's my absolute favorite part of one of these documentaries is just finding those little gems. Well, what's cool about it is, is like that particular title uh, is, is from a Mexican filmmaker named Ruben Galindo Jr. Uh, these days he's doing reality television, but he is very uh, proud of the movies that he made. He made three horror movies uh, in the late 80s. And uh, he's just an, an infectious interview with, with an infectious laugh, an enthusiastic guy, uh, was really happy to talk to us. And for me, what that represents is, is, again, going beyond sort of the North American border to talk about international filmmaking. So we have, uh, you know, Mexican filmmaker, we talk about Spanish entries, we have lots of Asian uh, entries this time around, uh, a lot more, a, a focus on Canadian stuff which you would think well wait is that is that unique but there's there was a thing that happened in the late 70s and the early 80s that was termed exploitation, and oh, yeah. uh you know the likes of, of david cronenberg and and indie filmmakers got tax incentives from the canadian government to make a lot of these great horror movies that uh we know but we might might not know is canadian like prom night or the gate or my bloody valentine you know, rock and roll nightmare, black roses, things like that. And so a lot of these movies owe their existence to tax incentives from Canadian, the Canadian government. So it's pretty, pretty cool when you really start breaking down the story about why all these films exist. And it all kind of goes to the explosion of uh, video technology and video stores and the need to create product for it. And we, we dive into that very specifically and that theme in this movie. Yeah, I love that. For me, so, what, what I sorry, Mike, uh, go ahead. really loves um, about your approach to all this isn't so much like focusing on, you know, talking about this movie or this movie or this movie, like it's a best of list. It's those movies are also a representation of being able to talk about something greater within the year it's released. Um, what's in the zeitgeist, um, just the overall uh, feeling and kind of community and the meaning behind the entire decade in horror and mm -hmm. what it's doing and, and things going on outside of the movie itself in media. It's true. It's true. What I have learned after making now three of these movies, but I kind of picked it up on the first one and I validated it on the second one. And I'm, I'm really playing up this element in the third one, just in terms of my uh, perception of all of this stuff, this decade is that uh, everything is on an even playing field. And it's for a very specific reason, because a lot of these movies, especially this third time around, you could, you could argue are just not good films with whatever barometer you're using as your, you know, your critical uh, uh, perception of them. That being said, these movies are important to all of us because it's not just about the movie. It's about what we were doing when we saw that movie. Who were we? What age were we? Where were we? Who were we with when we saw these movies? It's very, very important to get the context of why these are so important to us and that the nostalgia, uh, uh, when we look back at this decade, 
has a lot to do with whether we saw it on cable, whether we saw it uh, on after a, a, a search through the video store, whether we saw it at the drive-in, whether uh, you know our, our older brother snuck uh, Faces of Death bootleg in the uh, basement VCR, and we saw that. Hopefully, you know, changing our lives for the better or for the worse. Um, it's really important to remember that it, that is why we care about these films because. The perception of horror, especially this decade of horror, is that it's incredibly violent and it's incredibly uh, people who don't understand the genre. They, they just look, they, they scratch their head. And there was a pushback, you know, uh, along with the satanic panic. This, this sort of became a, a pariah decade of, uh, you know, horror films were, were sort of the, the tool of the devil and, and just uh, way too available to young kids because of VCRs. And there was a lot of concern about the psychological impact. So there's a lot to unpack with this decade, but it's uh, the movies are just part of the story. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of what was covered in the clip we were sent, I want so badly to own a T-shirt that says, for the sake of the children, burn the video nasties. <laughs> like, all those old, old tabloid headlines are so unintentionally metal. Very much so. Very much so. You know, the video nasties in the UK, the satanic panic uh, uh, here. I, You know, satanic panic is a more specific thing, but it, it's kind of become a general term in, in terms of the horror being... Uh, uh, caught up in the extreme reaction to what started out, uh, you know, everything from Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and The Omen, where people thought that uh, people were lining up to be in Satan's service. Um, and so the uh, the evangelical right really wanted to push back against that, but they got caught up with politics and, and this quote unquote moral majority. So it's a big story there. But uh, uh a lot of people, especially across the pond in the UK with the video nasties, they they're, they were even more extreme than we were uh, in the United States, where if people had, you know, for example, like Cannibal Holocaust, people thought that that was a snuff film and they could get arrested for that. And it wasn't until people really started paying attention beyond the cacophony about this stuff that it was just a tempest in a teapot, uh, a, very, a very vocal minority, and that People can handle this stuff, but it, it was banned for quite some time. Now, speaking of the satanic panic, I found it a little fascinating that we've returned to it as a subject pretty recently. Something like uh, Stranger Things Season 4 really bases uh, a lot of its themes around literally <laughs> depicting satanic panic. Right. And it makes it feel like all this stuff is kind of eventual. It's going to come back around. and Yeah, yeah. Stranger, Stranger Things wonderfully capitalizes on that. And uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I am of the age. Uh, I, I was born in 68. So I was a 70s kid and an 80s teen. And I was playing D&D uh, and, and loving it. And I was not worshiping the devil at the same time. And I was not like roaming catacombs, you know, <laughs> fantasizing about killing people, you know, uh, or even orcs in real life. I just didn't believe that. But uh, yeah, during during that, um, you know, so so in Stranger Things, they, they really demonize the this Dungeons and Dragons club, <laughs> you know, the Hellfire Club, <laughs> uh, you know, by saying, well, these guys are Satan worshippers because they're tying it into murders in the town, you know. Right, uh, right. For those who haven't seen it, and so the I, I'm simplifying it really, but 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 ultimately, I mean, I remember at the time uh, there was this movie called Mazes and Monsters. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, 
Mazes and Monsters. It's it's, uh, it's an early, maybe one of the first Tom Hanks uh, starring roles that he ever got. Uh, and uh, it was a TV movie. And I remember watching it because I'm like, cool, I'm going to see some Dungeons and Dragons in action. And like, <laughs> what I really saw was like a, like a Hallmark TV special about, you know, don't play D&D. It's bad, like drugs. So um, I was a bit befuddled because my friends and I were doing the opposite. We were not taking drugs. We were role-playing fantasy. Uh, so again, it's this this silly uh, overreaction and this cacophony where the uh, squeaky wheel gets the most attention. But I think for the most part, we're uh, you know we're, we're we're rational about this kind of stuff. But then again, in the same breath, what a week ago we had some woman freaking out because she thought your kids were watching Disney Plus. And Hocus Pocus two, Hocus Pocus two was on television, and she believed that the uh, the witches there were going to eat their children, and 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 witchcraft was coming through the television. And you you know, moms and dads, you got to watch what your kids are watching because they're going to be uh, transformed into you know Satan worshippers. Uh, it never so, goes away; it just it, transforms and gets more and more insidious, and th- those it, people never change. People need to read more, open their minds more, and learn how to differentiate between fantasy, fiction, and read. But you know, yeah. that's, that's just me. It would be it'd be a dream if we could get that happening. At the very least, I'd like to go back in time, convince people it should be okay if my high school had a Halloween dance because it wasn't satanic. Right? <laughs> it, well, see, it's like Footloose, you know? It's like I, I, <laughs> we're, we're one step away from some... You know, some town where uh, Hocus Pocus is banned because it's witchcraft, you know, I mean, it's it's just absolutely ludicrous and silly. And we can laugh at it to a certain extent. Absolutely. But when books are being banned left and right and we're, you know, two steps away from Fahrenheit 451, you got to pay attention and you got to be vocal about this and you got to battle this kind of stuff. Otherwise, if you are silent, you're helping the people who are pushing against this stuff for no reason other than their own personal agenda and that's it for the politics portion (laughs) well i was about to say i'd like to to circle back a little bit just on the length of each one of these individual documentaries How, how do you go about editing one of these to maintain a sense of energy and flow between so many different segments and such a large time span and such a large runtime well, it, it comes down to uh, a tremendous amount of organization, organizational work uh, ahead of time, um, you know, and and you have to have a great, incredibly great editor like Samuel Way, who has worked on all three of these and did In Search of Tomorrow, the uh, 80s sci-fi doc I did as well. Um, you, you just have a, have the intrinsic understanding of how to keep things moving. But fundamentally, you start with these this mountain of movies and and how it all fits into the story and chapters in between and how it's relevant to uh illuminating why these movies were important um but it also comes down to who you're interviewing who you get who's available uh uh to talk about these films who worked on these films or you know in front of the camera or behind the camera uh or or are experts on the subject matter or just enthusiastic well-known fans um, but it comes down to how do you put a conversation together uh, where you can get some information, uh, you can get some sort of uh, uh, insight into the making of the film or its impact uh, or just uh, why it, it might be kind of hard to come by these days or what's important about it. Um, but 
I can really take you down the rabbit hole of the process, but it's all outlined first. And we, we line up our, our cast and we have very long extended interviews talking about not only their particular projects that they're, they were huge in the eighties or that they worked on in the eighties, but you know, their, their appreciation for other films and filmmakers of the era. Uh, and what I do with all of that stuff is then I start scripting this literally top to bottom where, uh, you know, in terms of the, 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 the very specifics of it is you, you take a, an interview and you put it in a, in a, in a, in a program where it just uh, transcribes the entire thing. And what I could do is say, we're talking about, you know, you pick a movie, pick a favorite movie that you've had in these last two films, at least, you know, whatever it be, Um, you know, Christine, Uh, anytime I type in Christine, anyone who has has talked about that uh, immediately pops up and I can see, and, and it helped, listen, if I didn't have this, this, it it would take that much longer to really go through all this footage. (laughs) But what I do is I go through all these interviews and I say, this is relevant. This is relevant. This is good. Put String these bites together in a progression where there's no redundancy and the story is progressing and all these little uh, uh, bullet points that I really want to hit in a three and four minute piece about a particular film uh, help best tell the story about this film and celebrate it or, or you know, reminisce or uh, inform. And then collectively... Uh, you know, these things all come together. But, you know, the ne- uh, tell me when you're bored. Well, the next thing oh, I- no, I'm loving this. This is fantastic. Okay, this is fascinating. Okay, yeah. and, and the next thing we do, so so I'll, I'll do that, and, and Sam will, you know, this, I've got all the time codes there. Sam will pull all this footage and string it together, and then I will watch it, and I'll say, okay, this is co- coherent. Oh, you know, this particular bite, the inflection is wrong. It, do- it feels like it's not part of the flow of the conversation. Uh, or this is extraneous, or, oh, we really need to add one more thing to really sort of, you know, flesh this out completely. And once once I'm satisfied with that bare bones of a, of a film segment, then we go ahead and we start uh, uh, putting all the, all the clips together. You know, whether it's they allude to another film or a, a movie poster, or if they, they name check someone, do we put a poster and zero in on the name on the poster? Do we show their credit in the film? Um, when they talk about a moment in the film, which is the best part to, to show that? Um, and that's kind of how you piece it together. I mean, that's the basic. There's so much more. But um, you find yourself, it's just a very long process, but you find yourself putting them all together and you still have to come back because when everything's together, sometimes you feel like you don't have enough time later. There's almost a mathematical uh, approach to this in terms of I, I can fit in so many films and so many chapters with so much time. And I got to keep to that. And literally before I do any of them, I just I have to say, well, each year can only have X amount of films. And if they have more films, then I've got to lose some films on the other years. And I have to take into account that, guess what? From 1986 to 1989, there were twice as many to choose from because that's when the decade really got hopping. And so I got to make painful decisions about what can't go just because even if I have two of the greatest films in there, something's got to give. Otherwise, it's a completely uneven structure. And so I'm always at odds with the flow and the structure and the content. 
and keeping things moving and keeping things informative and keeping things fun and entertaining and interesting and watchable. Um, and that's kind of the nutshell, even though it was a long answer. <laughs> no, that was fascinating. Yeah. How do you go about choosing like, like a lot of the subtopics between movies? Yeah, that's what like, I was going to ask. Like those interstitials are some of the most fascinating stuff. Yeah. Uh, that is something that uh, sometimes several sometimes have been suggested by backers. And I say, ooh, that's a good one because they're like, oh, you should, you know, dive into the video nasties. I like to see more of that or whatever I think I think is relevant. Sometimes we just touch on these things. Sometimes we do a whole chapter to it. Um, but uh, the first in search of darkness, I think some of the real basic things were very important. They seem basic now, but they were, you know, very pertinent to the discussion, especially the first time around the history of horror. Uh, the perception of the final girl and heroes and heroines, music scores, special, you know, the visual effects and the special effects uh, as practical effects are, are absolutely required. Um, but uh, as, after you, you hit some of the basics uh, and then you're in part two, one of the things, you know, there's just more topics. I mean, this is a conversation about a decade. And, and and you could just go on forever. You guys have a great podcast where you were talking, you know, week after week after week after week, episode after episode, uh, about a, a, a never-ending supply of of discussion points, right? Um, and so I think you guys might be interested in in, in these one-on-ones, right? You know, uh, Robert Englund on Robert Englund, Nancy Allen on Nancy Allen. Um, that kind of was born in the second In Search of Darkness uh, out of the availability. Uh, so the first time around, we were just, a, and we've been each and every time, uh, just a crowdfunded documentary. And so we have, you know, a limited budget and we have limited time to get as much done, especially, believe it or not, when you're doing, you know, four and a half hour movie and you want to turn that around in a year, you got to draw a line with how many people can be in the film. Um, and people always say, is there anyone that you haven't gotten? I would, I, my answer is everybody, you know? Um, but there, sometimes you just can't get everyone you want based on availability, scheduling or, or whatnot. Uh, but part two, we were able to get some people that we weren't able to get the first time around. And so I thought to myself, well, I've got Nancy Allen, I've got Robert England, for example. Uh, and I already covered, uh, you know, a couple of Elm Streets in the first one. I already covered Dress to Kill in the first one. But it's a crime to have these folks and 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 not have them talk about this stuff. Or if I do have them. agreed. If you got Nancy Allen, you got to use Nancy Allen. Yeah. Well, and, and also I can't do the segment over again, except this time they're in it this time. So that was a bit of a conundrum. But I kind of thought if I have them singled out talking about their their career and have a career retrospective i could integrate this material and it makes sense and i think no one uh has complained yet <laughs> if, if you're revisiting <laughs> a song, a, a, a song uh, maybe that's a freudian slip if you're re- revisiting a film um you know from the first one or the second one uh, going off of that for the most part do you find yourself having to coach uh, the people you're interviewing into specific subjects a lot, or do or do you mostly find like those that th- they tend to go into that territory by themselves? Well, we sit down. Uh, Robert England, I sat down with three hours for three hours, you know, um, and he loves to talk and he loves to spin a great tale. 
And so I have a very, very specific set of notes where I know exactly what I want to cover in each and every film he's done. And I also want him to be talking about some other films that he's seen or appreciates or filmmakers or, you know, Italian horror, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. So we, we touch on all these things. You know, there are certain points where the the coaching comes from like name checking. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll have them re-say something if, They'll say, well, yeah, when I was working with Jim, I'm like, could you say, you know, um, or, you know, I was working with John, I'll say, you know, please say John Carpenter, you know, Jim would be like, you know, James Cameron, you know, that kind of stuff like that. Uh, Because sometimes for context, you need to sort of do it. Or they say, well, I worked on, that was my favorite, you know, project I worked on. Like, can you name check that project again, just for this particular bite, so I can make sure that I've got it. Um, but I don't really coach them, you know, I mean, sometimes I, we try and make it a very comfortable environment. These people are sitting down very exclusively for us. And that's an absolute gift. And I think that's one of the advantages we have for these films is that they know that they're going to be sitting down for at least 45 minutes to an hour. And we often go to and sometimes more uh, hours. And so they get very comfortable when they realize that they get to talk about more than just their projects. They get to talk about a whole genre and their love for it or their lack of love for it and why. Uh, and the, the, the conversation really goes all over the place. But I, I have a very specific uh, structure that I like to go whenever we do an interview that, uh, you know, um, yeah, they, they don't need to be coached. They're either bringing it or they're not, you know, and it's all very honest. You can definitely see the enthusiasm when they talk about uh, these subjects. Like, it, it's so great hearing, like you said, just like Robert England talking about giallo and things like mm-hmm. that. Subjects you'd never normally hear them talk passionately about. And that's something that they really respond to. You know, the enthusiasm is absolutely genuine because, you know, again, they've, they've, they've chosen to sit and talk with me, you know. And, and based on that, uh, it's not like they're at a, a junket you know, or a red carpet, you know, or, or a convention where they're, they're looking at their watch because they got to move on to the next person to talk to. Uh, so they get very, very comfortable. And uh, I, you know, I, I do my homework. And so when they detect that I'm knowledgeable about their career and not just a movie they did, and I'm, I'm there to cheerlead a movie that they probably wrote off as no one cared about it, like 976 Evil, for example. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, well, here's the deal. This, I, you know, I did this because I, I wanted to do it. And, you know, and it didn't turn out the way I wanted to. And here's the reasons why. You know, he has a forum to finally sort of get it off his chest, you know, and I've just got to learn how to condense it uh, to make it, you know, run with our structure and running time. But uh, everyone is very comfortable talking. And, and when they recognize that you know what they're talking about and you can have a, a, an informed, uh, intelligent conversation and even hook them up here, like, you know, again, it's a casual environment. So they can stop and start. They can start again. Uh, and if they're like, oh, God, who's that DP that I worked with? We could say, oh, don't worry about it. And we'll look it up. We'll, we'll feed the name to them. And then they'll say, all right. So when I was working with, you know, Dean Cundy on XYZ, you know, they could sound, we, we, we want them to look their best as well. And I think when it all comes together, um, it's uh, ideally, it doesn't sound rehearsed because it's all off the cuff and it's conversational. But, um, you know, it's with someone who is into the conversation and into sharing. And, you know, you, you talk about how, what was craft service like on that set? And they're like, oh, that seems like a silly question. But wait, 
there was that one day that they didn't have the donuts, so we had to do this, and that was the day we changed everything, and that how that's how we got Freddie's glove. You know, it's like I'm making that one up, but it's like you know, weird, weird things connect that connect the synapses that come up with some unexpected stories that they haven't thought about in years. It's surprisingly rare um, in documentaries that artists are allowed to talk about the art they like. I, I always go back to um, Stan Lee's Mutants, Monsters, and Marvels, which is just oh, a sit-down yeah. documentary interview with Kevin Smith talking to Stan. And it was, and it's the only instance, really, where Stan's talked to, like, he's a writer who enjoys writing and fiction and literature and isn't just asked, so what was it like creating Spider-Man? And as for a lot of these uh, directors and writers and actors, they don't really get to they just get the standard stock questions. They don't actually get to talk about the things they like about their about their career and the the art form they actually have chosen to work their entire life in. It's true. It's true. I mean, and that's a very important point that you you know you're making there. Um, the conversation is much easier when they don't have to go uh, into autopilot mode because they've talked about Elm Street 5,000 times, you know? Uh, now, that stuff is important because that's a very crucial element of what we are covering. But when you get beyond that, I, I, first of all, I never start with that stuff. I always do icebreakers and talk about the movie that you first saw that inspired you, you know, that, that when you, you know, what was the first horror film that you saw that made a real impact on you? Why did it make an impact? Did that affect your trajectory or an appreciation of the genre? You know, we'll talk about all sorts of other elements of, of things before we even, you know, half hour, 45 minutes and before we get to the movies that they want to talk about you know, or that they've worked on. But, you know, sometimes they, they want to talk about it and they get to it ahead of time. They start integrating that stuff in the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes or less. But, um, you know, you sort of follow the course of conversation. Going back to food again, I mean, it's like literally they're talking all about their their films. And so when you ask about how do you like your coffee, you know, people will perk up because they're no, they don't get asked that question, you know. And and it does connect with love of other things and and passions and hobbies and and books and artists and and craft that they that that motivates them. Uh, on a daily basis and when you get to talk they get to talk about that stuff you get great conversations that you can apply to this you know and it's like one of my favorite things about any mark hamill interview is the fact that he really would rather not talk about star wars that much but he really wants to talk to you about silver and golden age comic books yeah he's the ultimate geek i <laughs> I, I the first time I ever interviewed Mark Hamill, I, I've been I've been lucky to interview him several times. And the first time I sat with him was for a movie called Sushi Girl that he. Oh was yeah. Thinking. And I highly recommend Sushi Girl for anyone who's never seen it. Uh, but we were talking about Sushi Girl uh, for I had a half an hour with him, and we were talking for this is when I was with Entertainment Tonight, and uh, we were talking for twenty minutes about it or so. And I said, Well, with the time I have left. If you don't mind, I'd love to ask you about a little movie that you did in the late 70s. And he's like, oh, sure, sure, no problem, ask away. And I said, okay, so Corvette Summer, tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, my God, yes, you know, and he just got so excited about Corvette Summer and told me all about it. And then I said, yeah, mind if I ask a Star Wars question or two? And he laughed, and, you know, we've got that too. So 
you got to know how to talk to someone who's tired of talking about the same thing and would and is desperate to talk about other things because they love to talk about this stuff. And they're just he, Mark Hamill, is just the ultimate geek and fan of of movies and comic books. And when I was working for Famous Monsters, he was talking about how King Kong was his Star Wars. You know that that inspired him, and uh, he, he would paint Aurora models, and he was a total monster kid, and. You know, Famous Monsters magazine was a magazine that really put him on his career path because it, it told him that he could have a career in, in entertainment, that that existed. You know, he reads this as a kid and he's like, wait, you could be a makeup artist. You could be a filmmaker. You could be an actor. You know, this is something that people do. It's not just the movies that we go to. So it's real fun being able to get to the real nitty gritty of what, what makes someone tick. What's so much? What so many? Um, I think interviews miss out on by not asking those kind of questions is that stuff informs the thing that they're known for. You know, talking to Mark Hamill about Silver Age comic books or you know old movies that that he loves actually informs how he takes uh, seriously. He takes playing Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Like it, it all informed. Like uh, John Carpenter's in the news today because he was talking about how he wants to make a Dead Space movie, mm-hmm. and actually asking John Carpenter, like, how does you know playing a horror game make you feel? How does it inspire you in some way? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, these are these are fundamentally these are human beings, uh, and that sounds obvious, but I think people kind of forget it because they, these are icons, these are legends in the in the industry and of the genre. But uh, what gives me absolute joy in meeting my heroes is finding out that they're just normal human beings who love to have a good conversation and, 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 and have a good laugh at certain things and a sense of humor about other, of their own work uh, and, and just enjoy talking about film and talking about art and talking about uh, things that move them. And uh, when you remember that, when you talk about these things with uh, all of these folks, whether it's in my interviews for In Search of Darkness or Tomorrow or whatever the uh, publication is and whatever the uh, reason to talk about that, you know, their projects, um, that makes all the difference when you're having a conversation and they recognize that you're you're there to chit chat about life, the universe and everything. People are very responsive to that. So one thing I noticed when I was reading uh, Heather Wixon's first volume of uh, Monsters, Makeup and Effects was that every person she talked to essentially was inspired by the same movie. It was the Planet of the Apes. They all saw that and they wanted to do that process. Mm -hmm. Do you notice those kind of patterns when you're doing these interviews, like without guiding them or anything that just naturally all kind of focus on maybe the same milestone or something that inspired them to do? Oh, absolutely. People look, people look to certain films, uh, uh, every film in that, especially in the eighties, uh, it stands on the shoulders of the greatness of the films that came before them. So whether it's a Ray Harryhausen stop motion adventure, you know, or King Kong or Dick Smith's uh, 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 effects, you know, on The Exorcist, uh, people look to this stuff as it, it, it gives them the permission to say, I could do that or I want to do that. And that helps them on their way. And so whether it's sci-fi in 2001 or horror with any number of, of films in, you know, it's hard, it's harder without going back to the universal monsters to actually identify a particular film that's motivated them. But everyone does go to cra- the crafts, you know, the, the, whether it's Steven Spielberg movies or whether it's 
uh, Howard Hawks movies. You know, John Carpenter's a huge Howard Hawks fans and will, fan, and will will drop that name at any point that he can. And I think he's patterned his filmmaking primarily off of uh, that inspiration. So uh, Joe Dante, uh, even Cronenberg, they were moved by movies in the in the fifties that really affected them. And, uh, you know, they, they were fans of films first, but then they saw opportunities to say, well, they could do it. Now I could do it. You know, Screaming Mad George, who is in In Search of Darkness Part 3, he saw, um, he saw, he, he saw Harryhausen films, and that blew his mind when he was growing up because he was sort of on a steady diet of Godzilla films in Japan. Next thing you know, he sees uh, Jason and the Argonauts, and that really perks him up. But then he he's older, and he sees Rob Bottin's work in The Howling. And then he sees Rick Baker's work in American Werewolf in London. He says, I want to do that now. And that put him on his path to make his own mark in 80s horror. And I really love it, too, because you, you find those kind of common inspirational points but you get to see how each person took it in a very unique direction plus i'm always curious what it's going to be what's the thing right now that's going to inspire kids 20 years from now to go oh i saw it chapter one in theaters and i knew i had to go become a writer or become a horror person or maybe just be a clown i was going to say or be a clown just to confront their fears because that's what i have to do um yeah it's one of those things where anything can really be that that spark that ignites the flame of somebody's career. Uh, I am of the generation where Star Wars rocked my world and changed my my trajectory. And I could say that definitively. I walked into that theater uh, and I, I just wanted to see a cool adventure where I saw the commercial looked great and I couldn't wait to see it. And it, it, it just blew away my expectations as a kid. And I walked out feeling absolutely exhilarated and not only wanting to see it again, but to learn how they made it, how they made this film. And that put me on a path to understanding what filmmaking was all about. And so when I was a little older and I got to see American War from London, I myself wanted to discover the tricks on how Rick Baker changed David Naughton into a werewolf. Uh, and, and that put me on a path wanting to make my own films one day and, and, and study film and go to film school and, uh, it only takes one indelible experience to really set you on the right path, knowing exactly what you want, if you're lucky enough. Uh, to, to return back to directorial choices, since we kind of broached that a little bit here, how did you settle on the, the kind of clip style, especially in part one that you used, where you, you let someone speak for maybe 30 seconds and then you use them as a launch point for the next person's talking points, rather than just having them sit down and give a straight two-minute interview? I think five hours would seem like 10 hours if we, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's as simple as that, really. Um, I think, I think what's important when you're focusing on uh, a segment or a chapter and an interview is you want to get the energy of people's body language and, and facial expressions. Uh, so that's important to establish the person and, and their enthusiasm about what they're talking about. But you need to illustrate what they're talking about. Uh, you know, we all have imaginations. We can all perceive what they're talking about without having to cut to a clip. But when a clip is readily available to illustrate exactly what they're talking about, why not go to the clip? And so it's painstaking because we have, you know, thousands across 14 hours uh, and, and it's an absolute labor of love, but I wouldn't have it any other way because I love being able to have the opportunity to show while they tell. 
And that, that point makes perfect sense. I just think if I were in your shoes, I probably would have tried the long form and realized, oh, I've made a horrible mistake before having to go back to the drawing board. Well, over. you know, you, you start when, when you start, you know, I want to make a documentary about a topic. You know, you have to make, you know, key decisions that are consistent in terms of how you're going to present your material. Uh, and what do you have to illustrate this material and what kind of budget do you have? You know, can you have a roaming camera and go on location and, and go to places or is it we're going to sit in a studio or go to someone's home and the rest is going to have to be uh, graphics and clips and imagery and illustrations? How are you going to do the illustrations? You know, it's, if uh, if um, Bill Mosley is going to talk about his pitch for another Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, you know, and you can illustrate that with some cool animation because you have a really great guy, uh, that's the way to do it. So do, do you kind of feel the the let's say the death of special features on DVDs is giving rise to documentaries like yours. So it feels like over the last 10 years, we've gotten things like Crystal Lake Memories, which is what, six and a half hours long. Never Sleep Again, that's four hours long. Each segment of In Search, In Search of Darkness is about four and a half plus. I don't even know how long Leviathan is. People are really hungry for these, but it seems like there's not really an avenue to get that information to the same level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the two you specifically mentioned, Crystal Lake Memories and and Never Sleep Again, were the uh, the the barometer I was looking at to see do people want to sit through a four plus hour movie. You know, when we when we first crowdfunded in the first In Search of Darkness, it was not our intention to do a four and a half hour film, uh, but the structure and the intention demanded it because. Um, Robin Block, the, the CEO of Creator VC, who's the mastermind behind all this stuff, he said, David, I want to make a movie where we go from cover a whole decade, 1980, 1989, and we're just going to do every movie, one after the other. And I said, that sounds awesome. Robin, you do know that there's hundreds of movies, you know, that came out that, <laughs> during that decade. And uh, we got to pick and choose and we got to create some sort of palate cleanser in between with some larger context, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in order, again, going back to the mathematical equation, I said, well, if we say, say, say at, at the very least, we do five movies per year and then we have a chapter that's at least, uh, whatever, five or 10 minutes. I mean, I wanted to do 10 minute chapters, you know, at what point are we flying over a five hour mark and we're already too far? Uh, how much, cause how much time do we get to give to each segment? Um, so I looked, and once I knew that we were going to be sailing past four hours, uh, I looked to those movies as inspiration. I said, you know, people love these movies, and they return to them, and they talk about them, they return to them again and again. Uh, the the horror fan, you you guys and me, I think are a different breed when it comes to the consumption of this content. Uh, we're hungry for information. We're hungry for the stories uh, about how these films were made and the struggles and the challenges and the triumphs. And uh, I think with the success of, of special features and, you know, shout factory and, you know, vinegar syndrome and, and uh, uh, um, uh, Severin, sorry, Severin films, you know, whatever it may be, uh, people buy it specifically for these extra features to really do the deep dive into it. And so it's a whole culture of consumption that is showing, uh, demonstrating their enthusiasm by saying, we've consumed your movie, now we, we want more. You know, we wouldn't have made an In Search of Darkness Part 2 if the, if the 
reception was not so overwhelmingly positive, you know? And after we did part two, I was like, I'm so glad everybody wanted a part two, but I guess for that, it's probably it. And then even more people, you know, said <laughs> more, 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 more. And why didn't you do all these films that I wanted, you know? Um, and uh, I look at, I look at things like Letterboxd, you know, which is the ultimate in, in candid uh, 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 criticism. And I found so many people, I mean, I felt like someone was handing $20 at the door at Letterboxd because I couldn't believe how many people were saying, I could watch this 24-7, bring on part three, I, you know, do one for every decade, you know, all this great stuff, which is the ultimate compliment, you know. Uh, yeah. And so here we are. We've now capped the trilogy with another film that's the longest of the three. And I only made it that much more, that much longer because everyone has said more, more, more. We, we would love to have that. And so uh, it's just incredibly rewarding for me as a fan and as a bit of a completist that knowing I still have hundreds of movies still to go. Uh, I think we really have a great cross-section tale uh, over 14 hours with this trilogy uh, talking about one of the best decades in film. Do you see yourself in a decade coming back and doing your own legacy sequel to the In Search of Darkness series? A legacy sequel? What, what, define <laughs> legacy sequel so I can answer probably. Oh, the idea of uh, Scream 1 being followed by Scream 2, 3, 4, and then Scream with the same title, but you have your legacy stars returning. So it's half reboot, half sequel. Ah, a requel, a requel. Um, a requel. Oh, you're a requel fan. <laughs> right? I, you got to settle a term on that. Yeah, I'm not, not well, anyway. Um, I don't know if I'm a fan of the word, but I do like the concept. But, um, well, here's the thing. We can always do more 80s horror, but uh, I think everyone is primed for a different decade now. And so uh, we would love to do 70s, and we are looking to do 90s next. So we would do In Search of Darkness 90s. Right now we're in very early development on that. Ooh, that's so exciting. I'm so excited for that. Because the 90s is, I don't know why people just go, and then horror stopped for 10 years and then picked back up. Unless you were at the video store and you saw all the stuff that went straight to DVD and uh, there were plenty of great movies on the big screen and, and lots of trends, you know, the, the serial killer trend, the meta film, Kevin Williamson trend. Yeah. Uh, there's lots going on, you know, and of course the integration of of uh, a, a growing and slowly getting better, but mostly bad CGI integration, replacing practical effects. There's lots to discuss, and it's a very different take on a different decade that is an evolution in many ways from the 80s. Uh, that's, it's just a different uh, uh, business model almost with the stuff that uh, came out and why. And so I think that's right for discussion. And it's easy to tap a lot of the people who are doing these things because they are all uh, basking in, in the love at, you know, Monster Palooza and horror conventions, you know, a lot of the casts and filmmakers from these films. And uh, this is becoming an industry, you know, talking about Never Sleep Again and, and, and Crystal Lake Memories and such. Uh, horror, it's like Halloween. Uh, is is a very merchandisable holiday now and more than ever before, like when it wasn't probably 10, 15 years ago. I mean, now we all depend on Spirit Halloween to pop up in some dead store around the corner <laughs> because it's Halloween and we need to get more cool stuff for our front yard, you know? It's the only ritual we have left. <laughs> exactly. So I think 90s, 90s horror uh, is, is ripe for the picking and, and the exploration. And uh, we've had many people asking for it. And so 
we're keen to start working on that as well. I would also like to throw my hat in as the only person who's going to ask for a five-hour documentary solely on horror silent films. Ah, I'd be really into it. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one, though. Mike, they might have a hard time finding Max Shrek to interview, though. (laughs) Yeah, but you get the excuse to call it In Search of Silence. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a great idea. And I think, you know, there's like some, that whole era, you know, there's there's forgotten films and there's lost films, too. You know, London After Midnight, Lon Chaney. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, we've got the pictures, but the movie's gone. I mean, maybe in search of London after midnight. And then you talk about all the other films like Nosferatu and we'll get Willem Dafoe to talk about. Let Doug Jones do it. Let him finally play Nosferatu. That joke and you guys would get it. <laughs> well, I think we're running fairly close to time here. Uh, if, if I can, if I can get one more question in, and this is going to shy away from You can get one and a half, if not three. I'm happy. I'm enjoying chatting with Ooh, you guys. Boy. So whatever you guys want to talk about. <laughs> well, I can talk all day if you let me, and that's a mistake. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask, because uh, you went to Rondo for interviewing Mel Brooks, and I saw Mel Brooks when he was 90 years old do a Q&A, mm. and he just shooed away the mediator at one point and just took it over as a one-man show. Yeah. How, how do you interview someone as forceful and as iconic as Mel Brooks? Mel Brooks, I spoke to him when he was, I've spoken to him twice uh, for for uh, Young Frankenstein. And the first time I spoke with him, he had a box set uh, from Shout Factory that was like a, a retrospective on a lot of his, uh, you know, TV and radio appearances and so on and so forth. And um uh, each time that I've spoken to him, we had scheduled maybe 20 minutes and we went about 45 minutes. And each time we speak, he interviews me for the first five minutes because um, he wants to know who he's talking to and he likes to get to know the person he's talking with. And um, he's a force of nature and he's got the energy of a guy 20, 30, 40 years younger than the late 80s and now in the 90s that I spoke with him. Um, uh, he's amazing. He's like he's, a machine. He, he, he stood is, up and he danced and he sang and he, he, he just turned 90. I couldn't believe it. That's how he is staying timeless. I mean, he's just effervescent. He's, he's wonderful. And he's just super cool. He told me some great stories about, I, I think one of my favorite stories talking with him about the making of Young Frankenstein is that, uh, you know, Gene Wilder was a very creative force in that film. He wasn't just a hired actor. They were collaborative on this. And Gene Wilder was incredibly keen on doing something that was not scripted. And that was the putting on the Ritz scene. <laughs> and, and Mel Brooks thought, this is, this is too far. This is a bridge too far for young Frankenstein. It's ridiculous. I don't want to do it. We're not going to shoot it. And Gene Wilder fought for that scene. So much so that Mel Brooks said, I'm right, you're wrong, but I will give you the, give you the benefit of the doubt. We'll, we'll shoot it, and I know people will laugh it out of the theater, and it's probably going to ruin my film. But we'll do it. We'll see how it works in the edit. And he said, I was wrong, and I'm so glad that I was wrong. <laughs> and we all know that it's like practically the best thing about an already great film all around. So, oh, it's just a <laughs> Man, I, I, my parents introduced me to that movie before I saw most of the Universal monsters, besides the creature from Black Lagoon. And it's funny because I had to reverse engineer my interest 
in the old monster movies because I love that one so much. I had to find the rest. Well, and and that's the the, the genius of that film is that it's a it's a comedy and it's a parody, but it's also done in a very straightforward style of the same types of films that it's it's you know it's essentially a it's so close it could of, be Son of Frankenstein. Frankenstein. It feels yeah. it feels so similar. Yeah, I mean it's it's Son of Frankenstein with jokes in it basically. Um, well, Brooks's relationship to, to horror has always been interesting. Like, he, he, he was one of the key producers on The Fly as well, right? The Fly and uh, The Elephant Man. Uh, yeah. but, but, but he hides his name because he, you know, the, he, Brooks Films is in there somewhere. And I'm sure his credit appears, obviously. But he doesn't sell it as his own because, he's, you know, he, he's smart and he's savvy, you know, and he knows that his name is synonymous with comedy. And these are serious films. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of where he went with that. Um, I was going to say that uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is kind of in, in you know, hand in hand, uh, another gateway horror film that to me, uh, I was a total monster kid growing up. I love that stuff so much. Uh, all the universal horror films, but I watched the hammer horror films. I watched, uh, you know, Roger Corman silliness, you know, uh, Incredible Shrinking Man, what what have you. Um, all those films meant so much to me. And I remember the first time I saw Abner Costello and Lee Frankenstein as a kid and realizing that it was all the monsters that I loved in one film. And it was the original universal ones. I didn't realize that Karloff wasn't even in it. I, I didn't know it was Glenn <laughs> Strange. So, and that's the one that if, if there's going to be one that's a, someone else, that's the one that you could best hide in the makeup. But uh, that to me is an annual required viewing for our family. We laugh at the same jokes each and every time, genuinely, like we've never seen it before. And uh, boy, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It just is, is it's just so fun. We actually oh, did a commentary timer. for that, like what, two years ago? Yeah. Hey, get that self-promotion out of here. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, it's all right. It's boy. all right. <laughs> if, if not you, yeah. if not you, who? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I still find myself laughing like an idiot every time they get to uh, the Bell Lugosi opening the coffin and the candle slides down. <laughs> Personally, well, I'm just Mc, McDougal's, you know, wax museum. It, it, <laughs> oh no, McDougal's house of horrors. But yeah, 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 yeah. It's a horror McDougal's house. McDougal's such an asshole. Really? Come on. <laughs> oh man. That, that one's perfect, too, because you can throw that on a Sven Gulli, but you really don't have to make fun of it. Like, it's still entertaining. It's a little bit of everything. It, it scared me as a kid. I can laugh at it as a kid. I can do the same as an adult. It's and it, just it, It's perfect. a tight running time, too. It's just it's just ideal. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely ideal. Uh, but, yes, you know, spooky season. I, I love going back to so many films that really just I love and inspired me. I, I'm always trying to get see new things because, you know, I've seen plenty, but there's plenty I haven't seen. Uh, but there are favorites I'm always going back to. And, you know, that's one of them. I, I also go back to uh, uh, Village of the Damned for some reason. I'm always coming back to the 60s Village of the Damned, not the Carpenter. Um, <laughs> but uh, for some reason, that spooks me out and puts me in the, in the right frame of mind for the holidays. And, and I also find myself going back a lot to uh, Tom Savini's remake of Night of the Living Dead. That's really underrated. Yeah, very. It's underrated. a great film, and and as much as I love the original Night of the Living Dead, this is just like a sort of a, a post Aliens era update, and uh, and I put that you know because it, it puts uh, what's her name Patricia, forgive me, but uh, the you know it's Tony Todd and um, Patricia Tallman. They, they, they both 
uh, are toe to toe with defending themselves against the zombies. And it's just such a great film. Oh yeah. And Tony Todd has such a presence in it too. Oh man. Now I gotta, I gotta put that on my watch list for the night. I gotta cram that in somewhere. Yeah. yeah that, I feel like that's going to be one of the great what ifs of horror history is like, what if Tom Savini had really popped off as a director in his own right? Like what if that, what would that have looked like? We got, we got one I episode of Tales right. from the Dark Side from, didn't we? Um, with like the, the, the daughter creature monster. I think I just yeah, he, twist, but Yeah, he's got the one with the uh, little gremlin creature. That's like the best image in the entire series. I was right about the Patricia Tallman, so my brain oh, still, nailed still, it. still works. It was there, <laughs> lurking. <laughs> out of curiosity, do you prefer uh, Romero's kind of minimal version of the zombie, or do you prefer the Savini very realistic cadaver? Or are you a fan of, let's say, like a Zack Snyder, Fast, Furious kind of zombie? What's your favorite zombie? Well, it's funny because uh, Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead, I expected to loathe. And it had nothing to do with Zack Snyder because I didn't really know him at the time as a you know director and what he was cap- capable of. Uh, I was very entertained and I really loved uh, his remake of Dawn of the Dead. I thought it's a very fun film. Uh, his most recent one, Army of the Dead, is that what it is? Yeah, Army of the Dead. I, I, was, uh, I was not as enthusiastic about. Um, but uh, when it comes to the Romero stuff, uh, I just like, I love it all. Um, I appreciate everything differently. Uh, some remakes I really embrace and I don't compare it. It's apples and oranges because it's a remake. Uh, if it yeah. brings something to the table and it's a compelling, great, you know, the thing is a remake, you know, of the thing from another world, Howard Hawks you know, produced. Film. Yeah, fair point. Um, and uh, the Blob remake, I think, is really great. And the Fly oh. remake, I think, is really great. And so they all have, they've carved out their corners of where they, they stand uh, as original works. Uh, and so those I love. But, you know, for every one of those, you have a poltergeist or a child's play or <laughs> a cemetery or, or, you know, what have you. And uh, I will not you know, I think anything to keep the franchise alive does not take away from the original ever, you know, um, but it just it makes an obvious comparison. And sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not. But that's kind of my my argument consistently, even with myself when I have to rationalize it. I'm like, oh, another remake. But I think to myself, well, you know, if the blob could be really good, if the fly could be really good, if the thing could be, you know, a towering achievement, then Oh, those are all remakes, you know, and they have a different spin on on what came before 20, 30 years before. So why can't one of these remakes? And maybe they will be good. And that I've, I felt that way about Dawn of the Dead. I was like, this is a very entertaining film. And I'm completely not comparing it to because uh, it's just different enough to Romero's Dawn of the Dead. So it works for me. As, as fans, we can get a little too precious about that kind of thing. And yeah. I have to remind myself, remakes have been part of the business since the start. Uh 30, 1935, they had Mark of the Vampire, which is just a remake, apparently, of London After Midnight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you, you know, you can go all the way back to this invention of the talkie and find remakes. So oh, I should get too Hollywood shape. is remakes throughout the entire history of Hollywood. Um, I think, you know, with, in, in all fairness, the, what happens right now is that we're all... The, 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 the entertainment industry is just, it's churning remakes out and remakes and reboots and requels, whatever you want to call them, all the time. And so we're a bit tired of it. And we want 
you know, we, we clamor for something new and there's plenty of new and we're not making enough noise about the new. And, yeah, nothing and, frustrates me more than, oh, they don't make any new horror movies anymore. Yeah, You're not looking hard enough. Yeah, I can it, name off 100 right now if you want. But, it's an yeah. absolutely true statement. And, and you know, movies now like Smile and Barbarian, you know, uh, A24, A24 stuff, uh, it's all great material. And so supported and, you know, if Halloween Ends comes out, uh, whatever you might think about the previous Halloweens, the fact that a whole new generation gets to experience Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, battling on the big screen, it, we all win with that. Uh, and it doesn't take anything away from John Carpenter's Halloween all the way back in 1978. Arguably, part two isn't very good, depending on who you're talking to. And the person yeah. you're talking to is John Carpenter. So, you know. <laughs> A very long time ago, I heard somebody put it very simply, horror movies are all about too many sequels. And that's kind of a philosophy I've stuck to over the years. That's just part of the ride. You know, think about it this way, you know, fundamentally, and then we we should wrap it up because I do need to go. But I'm really enjoying talking with you guys, and I could talk to you guys all day long. Um, But uh, fundamentally, when you think about all this stuff, is like you have to remember Hollywood is a business machine. Uh, and, and it's the, it's the almighty dollar first and the creativity is just a, a, a nice benefit that comes along with it. But movies need to make money, uh, and, and studios need to make franchises to guarantee money and also to make original content. And so, you know, you may be, may be opposed to get, you know, supporting a, a new Halloween movie in a theater. Uh, but fundamentally by, by voting with your dollar, you get to allow, say, Blumhouse to do original programming that it wouldn't normally do if they didn't yeah. have a mint to to have as a safety net from yet another Halloween movie or another Purge movie or another Paranormal Activity movie. So, listen, you're not required to go see any of these if it's not your cup of tea. But uh, that's how this whole business works, you know. In Search of Darkness, we, we wouldn't have made a part two or a part three if people uh, didn't show the interest that they have. And uh, you got to vote with your dollar and you get more and ideally more creative and, uh, and exciting projects. But you have to tolerate the, the less imaginative franchise installments because that keeps the foundation solid to do other things and to also keep this all in the zeitgeist for future generations to discover. And uh, speaking of voting with your dollar, let's uh, let's make sure we get the plug in here. Folks, you can order pre-order your copies of In Search of Darkness 3, uh, also physical copies of the entire trilogy, until midnight on October 31st through 80shorror.com. So make sure you're doing that. Don't run out of time. Thank you. And and may I add that uh, it's it, you're ordering it. Uh, and what happens is uh, by ordering it between now and Halloween, you get to have your name in the credits, which is super cool. Or you could put your podcast name or your dog's name or a loved one. Uh, another cool thing that we're doing is that uh, because this really is kind of community driven content, especially in this part three with all the, all the 79 movies that we cover. Uh, I want to be able to give back to the community and, and incorporate all of us. So I'd love you guys individually and everyone who's listening. You can record your own video testimonial uh, about how much you love 80s horror, an 80s film or filmmaker, or even how much you love the In Search of Darkness franchise and what it meant to you in terms of your perception of 80s horror. 
Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to line those extremely extended credits, not only with your name in the credits, but we're also going to put as many, can't promise all, but as many of these video testimonials as we can to really talk about how the community loves all of these movies so much. And I, you know, maybe there won't be a dry eye in the house when it's all done. But <laughs> the best way beautiful. to do that is you go to our socials at, at 80s Horror Doc on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter. And you know how there's a link tree link. You click on that link tree link and then you'll see exactly how to do it and what to do in terms of your video testimony. And I can't wait to see everybody talking from the heart about how much we all love this genre. You're the man. Everyone get out there, start recording stuff. Can't wait to see what everyone puts in here. These credits are going to be three hours long. It's going to be amazing. And the deadline for that is Halloween uh, at midnight as well. Perfect. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hopefully we didn't hold you too late, but it's been an absolute treat talking to you. I can't wait to see part three. Likewise. I'm really enjoying uh, being on your podcast and uh, the chewy pulp in my drink is something that's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. I think that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.